You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 8th of March 2023 on Monocle 24. Russia toys with being tedious about the Black Sea grain deal. Further revelations that Fox News hosts may not necessarily believe everything they're saying. And how big does a hotel room really need to be? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Nadine Bachelor-Hunt and Charles Hecker will discuss all the day's big stories. And our Washington DC correspondent Chris Chermak will contemplate the presently unlikely prospect, though funnier things have happened, of Nikki Haley becoming president. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by Charles Hecker, Senior Partner at Control Risks, and by Nadine Bachelor-Hunt, Political Reporter for Politics Home. Hello to you both. Hello. Good evening. Um, Often in the light introductory banter component of the programme, we we do discuss the exotic locations that our guests have recently visited. And and Nadine, you you bring us tales from the West Midlands. I do. That's where I'm from. So I've been home um, visiting my family and my little brother and sister who are six. They're twins. And yeah, very nice. Nothing nothing romantic or epic to report, just the West Midlands. What, What is going on in the West Midlands in January? Uh, nothing really. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just just people just living a normal life. Not very much drama. Just is kind of like that. Not like busy like London. No, in in terms of everything we're about to discuss, that actually sounds not unpleasant at all. No, pretty mm. n- pretty ordinary. Not nothing. Not nothing like exotic about it. Unfortunately, Charles, the bar has been set at pretty ordinary. Can you clear it? I've gone slightly further north, and as I have frequently said in this very room, uh, I was in Norway not too long ago, which is a place I really enjoy visiting, whether it well, is for clearly. business or pleasure. <laughs> um, what What is it about Norway, especially at this time of year? I, I have nothing against Norway at all, uh, but I do find the whole 23 hours of darkness in a day a, a bit difficult to cope with. So in Norway and across all of Scandinavia, really, um, they're used to this, Andrew, and they know it's going to be dark when winter comes around. And the way that they deal with that is to have some of the most beautiful and innovative and and just ubiquitous lighting, whether it's electric lighting or the strategic placement of candles, um, the way offices and buildings and restaurants and the streets are lit, um, really pushes back the darkness and creates an absolutely fantastic atmosphere. They also drink a lot. Yes, they do. <laughs> um, there's a, there's, there's, there are pluses and minuses to that sort of phenomenon. Um, one is that alcohol is very strictly controlled by a state monopoly in Norway, um, but that state monopoly has amazing purchasing power, and you will find genuinely, and I use this word advisedly, staggering selection in Norwegian liquor stores. See, now you're just making me thirsty. Uh, But we will start in Ukraine, where President Volodymyr Zelensky is today hosting UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. While there clearly is not a shortage of subjects the pair could be discussing, both were keen to stress the importance of extending what has become known as the Black Sea Grain Deal. This is the mechanism by which Ukrainian ships can continue to move the produce on which much of the world relies out of the Black Sea without being pestered by the Russian Navy. The latest iteration of this deal expires on March 18th. Um, 
Charles, first of all, Russia, it's one of those deals which is assumed to automatically roll over if nobody puts their hands up and says we don't want to do this anymore. Um, Would there be any mileage in Russia doing that if you're looking at this from Russia's point of view? Um, The short answer is not really. Uh, I mean, this was a concern when the deal was first conceived and implemented last year, and it's gone through one or more iterations. It's renewed every three months. Um, And there was some saber rattling from Russia in advance of the first renewal of the grain deal. Uh, And this was, you know, consciously everybody understood that they were giving President Putin quite a lot of leverage um, in giving him essentially veto power over the renewal process. But here's the thing. In in recent days and weeks, weeks, Russia has been conducting an awful lot of diplomacy in Africa. Mm. And Africa is one of the places that would suffer the most from any increase in food instability. And if the president were, if President Putin were to uh, fail to renew the deal, Russia would directly be blamed for that food instability. And I think that's a mitigating factor against any and all of the saber rattling that's going on and the doubts about renewal. Uh, Nadine, as I've said before in the last couple of weeks, a a quite surprisingly prominent theme at the Munich Security Conference the other week was an understanding uh, among many of the foreign ministers and prime ministers gathered there that they are struggling to sell this uh, to the global south and that Russia is weirdly still winning the information war, or at least the propaganda war in in parts of Africa in particular. Do, Do you agree with Charles? Would Russia not wish to risk this by depriving people of I mean, yes, I I do agree. And I think, you know... The, Russia need as many um, allies and as many sympathisers as possible. They, they need to try and alienate as little people as possible. They know the West are never going to be particularly warm to them, but Africa has got a lot of emerging economies. Um, and yeah, it, it serves R- Russia to have them on, on their side and they don't really have anything to gain from alienating them. So, you know, this grain situation, we know, as the UN has said multiple times, that if there is a kind of grain shortage or issues with um, with with produce like that it will be african nations that suffer the global south rather that suffer the most so it's not really in putin's best interest i mean you know invading ukraine wasn't really in putin's best interest let's be honest so (laughs) there is like a a kind of um you know where to draw the line but I, i do feel like this would be a bit of an own goal with no kind of territorial gain or glory behind it. So I feel you, like yeah. you, you have somewhat preempted the leaden quip I was about to make <laughs> to to the extent that we can all agree that Russia would never do anything pointless and self-destructive for reasons surpassing the understanding of everybody else. Uh, but Charles, are we clear up to this point because there have been definite suggestions to the contrary and not just from Ukraine that Russia has been other than punctilious in observing the conditions of the deal as it is supposed to be. They they have been kind of a jerk about it. Uh, there's a few problems with opening up um, traffic through the Bosphorus and, and, and into the Black Sea. And, and one of the concerns from all parties here is the smuggling of weapons. And, and Turkey took it upon itself to operate the checkpoint um, that boats pass through to make sure that they're really taking grains and oils and agricultural products and all of the things that are supposed to be going through in accordance with the deal. The problem is that just a few days ago, um, there was a ship um, spotted inbound into the Black Sea that had left from Syria that was carrying a cargo of weapons destined from Russia. Uh, And so part of the concerns about the continuing operation of this deal is that everything remains above board and that nothing like war material is smuggled into or around the Black Sea um, under the guise of the grain deal.
Uh, how important is it, do you think, uh, Nadine, that Guterres is doing this in person? I mean, this meeting could have been conducted via phone or via Zoom easily enough, but the Secretary-General of the UN has joined the long queue of dignitaries to have got on the train and made the long journey to Kiev. I think it's a kind of a public statement, you know, and I think it's fundamentally a way of keeping Ukraine in the news. I do feel like there is a concern among Western nations and generally uh, foreign observers that this could fall down, the, fall down the agenda. It's a year on now since the mm-hmm. beginning of the war. If a visible presence, I mean, we're talking about it, even here we're talking about it because it's an in-person visit, so it feels more significant. So I think, you know, it is important um, for visibility um, and to keep it on the, on the news agenda. What do you think, Charles? Is that that concern beginning to set in yet? And I know it's a it's a point I've made from this chair before, but uh, I am old enough to remember when people sort of zoned out of a four year long siege of a European capital city. Yeah, this is a it's a genuine concern, and this is a term not to use very loosely. But um, there is something known as war fatigue, and of course, the real war fatigue is on the battlefield in Ukraine. Um, but beyond that, war fatigue in the political sense and in the economic sense is setting in in NATO, in Europe, uh, in the United States, um, in the political class that has to support uh, Ukraine um, on the battlefield. And I guess Guterres going there in person is is genuinely highly symbolic in saying that this is that we we are not suffering from war fatigue, that support remains vigorous and robust, uh, and that we are going to do these meetings in person and expend that extra effort to show what we, you know, our support for Ukraine. Well, let's move along now to this guy. In retrospect, it is clear the 2020 election was a grave betrayal of American democracy. Given the facts that have since emerged about that election, no honest person can deny it. Yet the beneficiaries of that election continue to lie about what is now obvious. The real crime, they will tell you again and again, is not what happened on Election Day 2020. The real crime is what happened two months later on January 6th, when Donald Trump led an insurrection against the duly elected American government. To prove that claim and to divert attention from the details of the presidential election itself, Democrats in Congress impaneled what they called the House Select Committee on the January 6th attack. The point of that committee was to prevent Donald Trump from running for president again. Uh, More where that came from, obviously. That is Tucker Carlson, probably the best known of the Donald Trump cheerleaders who rake in an abundant living in flaming the dander of the core audience of Fox News, i.e. angry yokels who think the moon landings were faked and professional wrestling is real. To the surprise of not one vaguely cognizant adult, court filings in a defamation suit being brought against Fox by electoral tech concerned Dominion have revealed that the views that Carlson expresses in private emails, that is, are at significant variance with those he propounds in public broadcasts. Um, Charles, as as the American, most obviously American, at least, at the table, um, how, how shocked are you on a scale of, of one to extremely? Um, not in the slightest. <laughs> um, that, that said, look, you know, there is there has been legitimate questioning about whether not just the people at Fox News, but whether the right-wing media really does believe all the stuff that it's saying on the evening news, or whether they're just laughing all the way to the bank. And and I think that the answer has now come down, come down very firmly in favor of their bank accounts. I mean, it is just shocking the, the, the difference between what they've been saying to their employers, to each other, um, to their bosses. Because we, we should emphasize this, the, the findings have hilariously revealed that this is far from limited to Tucker Carlson. That's right. Um, this is pervasive 
pervasive throughout the entire Fox commentary operation. And I think one of the more interesting things to emerge from what we've learned about how two-faced Fox's opinion hosts have been is that they've had a go at their own news staff. And so the Fox News reporters who were sort of doggedly pursuing the election fraud or lack of election fraud story um, were getting hammered by their colleagues over on the opinion side of the business and being hung out to dry. Um, Nadine, I am reminded of a conversation I had about Tucker Carlson with one of his uh, contemporaries at one point and a sort of former associate, a reasonably well-known American conservative commentator who admonished me, don't overthink Tucker, he likes money and being on television. (laughs) Um, Is is it basically that simple, do you think? Do you think there's any ideological conviction underpinning what he does at all? Um, So I know people at one of the... UK's right-wing, potentially British version of Fox News, which uh, organisation which I won't name, um, and there listeners is listeners an... may may take a while to get at what <laughs> you're referring to. Um, but it is the case that I have been told that there are people on that network where nobody really thinks what they're saying makes any sense, and people do think they're a bit crazy. Uh, but it gets views. It, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know who is actually watching this channel, um, but it does get views. It, it does get clickbait, and it does get that kind of outrage viewing that you know studies have shown people are more likely to turn on something on television or read something if it makes them angry. You know, and as a journalist, if you've got an article with an inflammatory headline, as you know, even with the government with its rhetoric, you're going to get the attention. So I think that's what Fox News does. It taps into that outrage politics that is arguably one of the reasons why social media is so toxic is that's how it functions it thrives on this it thrives on this conflict these culture wars and i just feel like in many ways fox news is the culture wars distilled mm. into tucker carlson's show and i really struggle to believe that he's actually a real person like when i, when I see <laughs> clips how is it not a parody it's crazy like, even the name sounds like some sort of auto-generated <laughs> you know, pseudonym for generic frat guy doesn't it yeah and that's what's so um, surreal about it um, Charles, he has recently been presenting a, a somewhat partial view of the events of January 6, 2021. And by partial view, I mean it's not far away from saying nobody talks about President Kennedy's pleasant afternoon drive through the Dallas sunshine. Um, <laughs> where is he going with that, though? Again, does he actually think he can't possibly think that this is a story? Uh, you know, this is th- this story, the story of him reestablishing or seeking to edit or, or, or the, the narrative of, of January 6th in itself is, is shocking. Um, the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, gave Fox News and Tucker Carlson specifically access to hours and hours, I mean, literally thousands of hours of videotape of what happened in the Capitol. And Carlson is spinning this narrative to suit his own... Uh, wishes. And frankly, it's all blowing up in Kevin McCarthy's face. And Kevin McCarthy is saying, I have nothing to do with this, even though he gave access to Fox News himself. It's just the the massaging of of news, whether it's the election or whether it's what happened on January 6th or, or, or any other sort of controversial topic, as Nadine mentioned, you know, that falls victim to polarization and the culture wars. It's just astonishing. Uh, Nadine, a, a variation on a question I have asked both wishfully and wistfully from this seat many times is, do you get any sense at all of the fever beginning to break? Does it make a difference, for example, that Senator Mitch McConnell actually has spoken up quite 
explicitly against Tucker Carlson's presentation of January 6th. And, and Senator Mitch McConnell obviously is an extremely senior Republican figure who has spent most of the Trump period just, he just reminds me of somebody with a noisy neighbor, like he just wishes it would all stop, but there's there's not really anything he can do about it. Um, but this time he has, I guess, done the equivalent of writing to the council. I'm, I'm, I think this metaphor might be running out of juice, but does that, is that a significant moment? Mitch McConnell basically standing up and saying, look, all this stuff on Fox News is absolute twaddle. Yeah, I think it is. And I, I mean, maybe I'm being optimistic, but I, I I do feel like as an element of these kind of far-right culture warriors settling, not settling down, but people thinking they're a bit more stupid and people recognising it a little bit more. But again, I, do, I don't know if I'm imagining that. But I do th- I do think it is significant. Um, and I hope that politics and commentating does start to move more towards the centre ground because this level of polarisation... I mean, the idea that you can rewrite history... We all saw it on television. Mm -hmm. I was sitting um, in the West Midlands at home during (laughs) lockdown, watching it unfold on CNN, just completely gobsmacked that we were watching live the fall of Congress in America. Like, crazy. And then the idea that there's actual, you know, inverted commas, journalists going on shows and saying, yo, this didn't actually happen the way that you actually saw it happen is 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 crazy to me. So let's hope we're kind of exiting that kind of cranky stage. Well, Nadine and Charles, thank you both for the moment. We will have more from you shortly, but we will be sticking somewhat with the subject of cranky American culture warriors because later this week, US presidential candidate Nikki Haley will be heading to Iowa, the first battleground state in the Republican presidential nominating contest to join a panel on US foreign policy. Monocle's Washington DC correspondent Chris Chermack has been looking into what Haley's record as US ambassador to the UN can tell us about her plans as president. You know, I went into the UN. I purposely didn't learn the do's and don'ts of the UN. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go in with fresh eyes. What I did do is I made sure that I that those countries knew what America was for and what we were against. I didn't care if they didn't like me, but I wanted them to respect America. Nikki Haley freely admits that she did not know much about the United Nations at the time she was nominated by Donald Trump to be its ambassador. At the time, a popular governor of South Carolina Haley writes in her book that her husband even Googled the United Nations and read out the entry. And yet, once she took on the job in 2017, at the start of the Trump administration, her approach wasn't quite as drastic as you might have expected. So if Nikki Haley had wanted to, she could have wrecked the UN. This is Richard Gowan, UN director of the International Crisis Group. Uh, The mood in New York when Haley arrived, and especially because Haley was not a known quantity at the UN was very bleak. And what happened was, was that she made it clear that she needed the UN to show that it would straighten up. She wanted, you know, cuts to UN budgets. But in return for those concessions, she actually made a political effort to protect the UN from the worst of Trump's wrath. Now, to be fair, not destroying the United Nations is quite a low bar. We're still talking about a period where the United States withdrew from the Paris Climate Accords, the Iran nuclear deal, the Human Rights Council, and unilaterally moved its Israeli embassy to Jerusalem. But the point from people like Gowan is that Haley is still a pragmatist in a Trumpian world. She was tough, and like all Republican ambassadors at the UN, she rubbed some countries the wrong way, but 
She could also be collegial, and she was definitely a dealmaker. And yet, now that Nikki Haley has announced her candidacy for US president, seeking to become the first woman to be nominated by the Republican Party, she appears to be running away from her lesser-known record as a pragmatic UN ambassador. Haley has tried to rewrite her history a little bit. Uh, she has, in recent years, attempted to reframe her time at the UN to make it seem like she was a real hardcore MAGA Republican. But actually, having watched her in 2017 and 2018, I think we saw someone quite different. But then not everybody buys into this pragmatic version of Haley anyway. I think the things that she was most passionate about were the things that Trump uh, felt were most important also. This is Erwin Arieff, a longtime UN correspondent who wrote a Nikki Haley watch column for the news website Pass Blue. The most extraordinary things to me are the extent she went through to be his little friend in areas where there was a a lot of controversy. Most notable is her fervent opposition of the Iran nuclear deal. Pulling out of the deal, in Arief's mind, caused lasting damage to the United States and its reputation among countries at the United Nations. One of the many things that's going to be fascinating about the 2024 Republican presidential contest is that while foreign policy does not typically play a major role in US elections, it is one of the areas with the sharpest disagreements. There might be bipartisan recognition that China poses a rising threat, but we can expect Donald Trump to become more strident in questioning aid to Ukraine and his demands for Europe to shoulder the burden. He has been proven to kind of willing to throw the allies under the bus. He's probably more likely to call for a retrenchment of America's military and financial commitments to, to Europe and Ukraine. This is Maida Ruge a Berlin-based senior policy fellow with the wider Europe program of the European Council on Foreign Relations. Ruge says the jury is out on whether Florida Governor Ron DeSantis will follow Trump's line, though he too has been questioning aid to Ukraine more recently. By contrast, Haley and other more establishment figures are following what Maida Ruge calls the primacists line. Nikki Haley, Mike Pompeo, John Bolton, Mike Pence, all kind of establishment figures who have served in the Trump administration. They see NATO as indispensable for America's goals, obviously. They see allies as assets rather than just freeloaders that are needed for America's kind of forward strategic presence in the world. But they also think that the allies, Europeans especially, urgently need to step up as far as their military spending and contribution to NATO is concerned. Beyond NATO and Ukraine, Nikki Haley herself also appears to be trying to stake out a kind of Republican middle ground by calling for cuts to aid to nations that oppose U.S. interests, but also keep aid to a good democratic nation like Ukraine. I want to list all 193 countries. I want the second column to be the percentage of times they vote with us and against us. And I want the third column to be how much foreign aid we give them. <gasps> and I took that book and I gave it to President Trump and he lost his mind. He's flipping pages, yelling out countries. And I said, look. That is a fairly mainstream position within, at least within base voters, that we should be taking into account uh, how supportive countries are of our overall goals before we turn over money to them. This is Chris Tuttle, head of the Renewing America program at the U.S. Council on Foreign Relations. 
The question will be just how much mileage a Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis can get out of hammering the Haley's of this world on their quietly pragmatic mindsets. Chris Chermack, thank you. You are listening to The Daily on Monocle 24, and today is International Women's Day, usually most volubly observed by harumphing bores on the internet demanding to know why there isn't an International Men's Day. There is on November 19th, and it might be plausibly argued every other day. But by way of attempting some sort of meaningful gesture for International Women's Day, the government of the United Kingdom has announced sanctions targeting three individuals and one state entity in four countries on the grounds of violating the rights of women. There is pretty clearly a case against all four obnoxious warlords in South Sudan, the Central African Republic and Syria, and those weirdos in Iran who are paid by the state to beat up women for exposing too much hair. But, Nadine, will any of this do any actual good? Uh, no, I, I don't think it will, <laughs> unfortunately. I think the, you know, the epidemic of violence, misogyny against women is global. It's not something that a few sanctions are going to deal with. I think it's one of those symbolic gestures that you see on days like this where a government wants to signal, you know, we... Uh we, we uh, are against, you know, violence towards women. I think that James Cleverley's visit, um, I think was to his mum's To hometown. his mum's place of birth, yeah. Bo, in Sierra Leone. Yeah, I think that was quite sweet. I think some of the mm. videos on social media were quite cute. But unfortunately, do I think this is going to make a huge stride in the fight for global equality for women? No. But, you know, if you've got some misogynists being sanctioned, it can't be all bad. Well, indeed. I mean, it's, it's, it's not nothing, Charles. Clearly, it's not nothing. But... How much symbolic value does it have if symbolic is all the value it can have? These are sanctions, certainly against three African warlords who I suspect would only ever have been heard of by people who take an exceedingly close interest in the affairs of those three countries. This is absolutely the lowest hanging fruit when it comes to sort of sanctioning and, and, and political gesturing. And, and and I think really the harshest interpretation of this is that it might be quite cynical, really. I mean, these were easy, easy shots to take. Take. And, and if this is where the UK government is sort of hanging its hat on women's rights on International Women's Day, um, they may want to step up. Um, I, I hope I've pulled some statistics that are fresh and accurate. Uh, but I think one of the reasons why the UK may be shooting at such low hanging fruit is that less than one third of parliament, Nadine, jump in here, if you, it, but less than one third of parliament. And also, Charles, we don't shoot at fruit in Britain. We're not Americans. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me tell you. Uh, um, so, <laughs> less than one third of parliament is women. I think that's true, yeah. Uh, 35% of the civil service permanent secretaries are women. Um, 8% of the FTSE 100 has a female CEO. 35%, so just about a third of boards of the FTSE 100 are made up of women. And so you might want to suggest to UK policymakers that while they go about sanctioning warlords, um, that they kind of bring their own house in order a little bit first. And you could also say, you know, things, I think it's like 1% of rapes are actually prosecuted or something. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are some real domestic issues when it comes to, um, to, you know, violence against women. I mean, I got some polling today for Politics Home and 55% of British women have little or no faith that the police will protect them. So, you know, there is a lot of domestic stuff they could be doing. Like sanctioning warlords, you know, sanction them. Sounds great. Sanction all of the warlords. <laughs> I love it. But, you know, domestic stuff, I think that also needs to be a priority. 
I, I, I would quite, quite like to hear that headline. Like Foreign Office today announced they're just sanctioning all the warlords. <laughs> Why all not? of them. Um, but there, there is more to it than that, in fairness, Nadine. The, the policy document that the Foreign Secretary James Cleverly went to Sierra Leone to launch is what they're calling their International Women and Girls Strategy for 2023 to 2030, um, none of which is... All of it sounds great. I, I read the document earlier, and it is making the point that for anywhere in the world, especially for developing countries, uh, female emancipation, female empowerment is an enormous driver of economic improvement. Yeah, but also they cut foreign aid, so well, yeah, <laughs> that's, so, that's kind of a key. I think see, they cut it just by being picky. <laughs> so I think they cut it from what's it, 0.7 to 0.5 mm. or 0.5 to 0.3? I, I can't remember the exact figures, but you know the government were warned that this was going to have a huge impact on schemes like supporting women in um, in developing countries uh, where marginalisation of women is quite severe, even things like access to healthcare. So the government were warned about that. Um, and that was something that stuck out to me today when I saw, you know, the broadcaster, broadcast round, all the press releases dropping in my inbox from the government is the cuts to foreign aid are going to have a far bigger Im- impact on the lives of women globally than you know, a few sanctions on a warlord. Because because infuriatingly, in the context of what you have just said, one of the things that the International Women and Girls Strategy adumbrates most enthusiastically is the colossal difference that can be made with actually quite small financial investments in female-run businesses, in female education. And as you quite rightly point out, that will need to be supported by actual money. Exactly. And, you know, one of the biggest criticisms of the government's decision to... um, to, to kind of cut foreign aid was it was already linked to GDP. So I think it was 0.7% of GDP automatically went to foreign aid, which meant it shrunk when the economy shrunk. Obviously, the British economy isn't doing too great right now, as everyone seems to know. Um, but, you know, the fact that it was cut to 0.5, again, I think it was 0.5, demonstrates this like kind of reneging on the commitments we've made to developing nations. So, you know, it swings around about great sanction warlords, but also let's think about the real life consequences of cutting foreign aid on women globally. Uh, Charles, just just finally on this one, if if we're going to go around the place sanctioning foreign entities or individuals for being jerks to women, um, I need the listeners at this point to imagine me doing the thing where I'm coughing in a form of syllables, which is a thinly veiled attempt to mask the phrase Saudi Arabia. Oh. <laughs> um, it's a long list, Andrew. Yeah. Uh, and and if you're, you know, look, um, the UK has a pragmatic foreign policy. Um, and is, is one way of putting it. it yes, it, it, it's you know they've obviously picked on the on the countries that are the easiest to bully and and to push around. The I Central African Republic buys very few fighter planes, and and I don't think you're going to get much much pushback from South Sudan or from Iran, which you know we're all in hot water with now anyway, um, and certainly not from Syria. So um, yeah, there are bigger fish to fry all over the world, uh, and the UK is not likely going to go there. Well, finally on tonight's show, it is pretty weird when you think about it that we venerate the vast and opulent hotel room. Ideally, especially if we're on holiday, we will spend little time conscious in any such dwelling. A hotel in Zhengzhou has pursued this logic to its brutal conclusion, offering rooms so tiny that the toilet is close enough to the bed to double as a side table. Make sure the lid is down before you put your phone on it. On the upside, it's yours for 60 yuan a night, or about 7 quid, Uh, Nardine, 
that'd be two grand a month in Neesden. Um, are, 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 are you at all enticed by the idea of a holiday in Zhengzhou, paying seven quid a night to sleep in a room? I mean, I literally about, I'm going to say, a quarter the size of this studio. Uh, no. <laughs> in, in a nutshell, no. I'm quite claustrophobic in things like that as well. It's not relaxing. And odds are, if I travelled all the way to China, I'd be on holiday. And I feel like I'd probably push the boat out a little bit and not sleep with my head next to a toilet. Uh, Charles, what, what do you think? You're sleeping with your head next to toilet, but seven quid a night. Seven quid a night is not bad. Oh, you get what you pay for very well, much indeed. in this department. What I love, Andrew, is the way you phrased this when you introduced this piece, because any sort of Londoner who was reading this story was thinking, I wonder what I could sell this for. <laughs> <laughs> How much would this get me in zone one? Um, and, you know, seven pounds a night for sleeping next to a toilet is, um, it pushes the boundaries of, of economy class. Um, you'd get six figures for it in <laughs> central London. I mean, we did want to broaden this out to talk about small or weirdly designed places we have all stayed in. I mean, I, I have, I've stayed in some places. I've stayed in some very, very small hotel rooms, especially those weird hotels you get folded into incredibly narrow terrace houses in some cities in the Netherlands. And some I've stayed in attic rooms it's not as small as the one that we're talking about, but you wouldn't live long on the difference. Nadine, what's the smallest such dwelling you can recall? Um, I mean, my room when I first moved to London was tiny. I mean, you could fit the bed in it and that was about it. Um, but when I went to Israel, there was a hotel we stayed in. in well, it wasn't a hotel. It was like an apartment in Tel Aviv. And the, the shower was kind of like in a glass box in the middle of the room. And it was kind of odd because it's it's you stepped out to front of the bed but it, it wasn't like it was a separate room it was like glass so you could see the top of someone's head and the bottom and someone's feet from the bed and it was, I was just I just didn't really get see, the layout this, of that this is a thing I have noticed in a few recent new build hotels in locations as disparate as Tallinn Abu Dhabi and Vienna this thing where parts of the bathroom are visible to the rest of the hotel room or in the hotel yeah. it's, it's like just, a cube why, why is there a window into the bathroom within the hotel yeah, room yeah it was a glass cube yeah uh, in the middle of the, it was very I, I really didn't like it that's quite well. strange I was flat, I was sharing the hotel room with my mom as well so it was just kind of wasn't great <laughs> yeah, and, and, and although at the risk of turning this bit into the, the, the three Yorkshiremen my, my first actual own rented space in London was the upstairs kitchen of a large rented house in Streatham um, my sleeping bag only fit in if I laid diagonally across the floor with my feet underneath the sink. <laughs> 28 quid a week. Um, <clears throat> this, was a, this was a long time ago. Uh, Charles, have, have you stayed anywhere quite so bijou? Uh, I'm, I'm not a very tall person. Um, I don't travel when I travel with very much luggage. Um, I can fit into pretty much anywhere. I mean, when it comes to sort of odd accommodation, Andrew, the place that sticks out in my memory, um, the accommodation was perfectly well-sized. Um, but you can imagine my surprise when I turned up at a hotel in Germany that was actually a retirement home. Amazing. And... It had a, su a sufficient number of vacancies that they decided to put them out on the market as hotel rooms. Um, but what Sorry, when you say vacancies. <laughs> yeah, well, um, the, the, the strangest feature of this accommodation, it was a perfectly lovely place and nothing against retirement communities. Just got a lot of ghosts. The, when you got there and you checked in and when I went up to my room, there was a person's name on the door. As in sort of, you know, under the doorbell, kind of like oh, you're, you're, no. you're bringing Mr. Schultz's room. And, and they hadn't removed 
removed his name from from the front door. I thought you were about to say they hadn't removed something else there for a second. <laughs> no. You got a remake. <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, the room was perfectly well proportioned, um, but it is the first time that I've ever sort of paid money to live temporarily in a retirement home. Uh, I was also going to ask if either of you have any other hotel room bugbears aside from being either actually haunted or having to deal with a you know a transparent bathroom uh, b- because for me what i have come to realize is that i, I start to get just enraged by unnecessary uh, fripperies in hotel rooms. I, I have stayed in enough of them that I've realized all I actually want, elementary hygiene, hot running water. If the Wi-Fi works, that's nice. But what I actually want are thick walls. That's yeah, yeah. it. That's, so, that's actually it. So when I, I, I went to Cyprus for my birthday in October and there was like an air vent thing in the bathroom where it must have connected a lot of the, the rooms and there was this one woman who clearly has, was quite drunk after she because it was an all-inclusive hotel so there was a lot of alcohol she was screaming at her partner for about three hours about ordering the wrong pizza and it just went on and on and on and at one point we thought is that a d- dying animal and it was still her screaming what, oh, three hours solid about yeah, a pizza constant constant and it, it was unhinged initially we were like is she okay and then we'd hear the words it's like i didn't want that in pizza and it was like right okay so that moments like that um and also when you go there and they've not made the bedding up on the bed or when they give you the bedding and it's dirty and stuff like that mm-hmm. i struggle with as well yeah I, I did once stay in a a hotel an insufferable hipster hotel in a u.s city that i will not name except it's the one that you would most imagine would have the most insufferably hipster hotels in it and it had literally every cliche you could possibly imagine for some reason it was equipped with dj decks and a selection of vintage <laughs> soul vinyl because that's what you want when you're in a hotel room there was a kaleidoscope like why why is there a kaleidoscope in my hotel room but i could still hear every time someone in the next room sneezed you know andrew i've never been to portland but (laughs) um, (laughs) next time i go i'll be seeking your advice Uh, it it is i mean i I quite like it despite everything in fact possibly because of everything But anyway, uh, Portland, if you're listening, I, you've heard all the jokes. I'm sure they're not I've taking... I've never heard any jokes about Portland, actually. Really? Oh. You can tell me. Uh, uh, exactly. We, we, we all, we, have you got some time to spare? <laughs> um, Nadine Bachelor-Hunt and Charles Hecker, thank you both for joining us. That is all for this edition of The Daily. Thanks to Nadine and Charles, also to Chris Chermak, who we heard from earlier. The show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Andre Nikolai Pamentuan. Our sound engineer was Callum McLean. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks. Thanks for listening.